You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hey, everybody. It's Kelly. This is my March live podcast recording. For those of you who are on my email list, you got a webinar link, and you can come on the webinar and ask me questions and answers probably going to do about 45 minutes here, probably going to go to about 1030, answer all of your questions. And man, we got a lot of questions. I'm drinking coffee. I am in a very fancy rock and roll hotel room, downtown Seattle, because I was doing this amazing uh, women urology meeting yesterday, which was incredible. The amazing Hollis Aubrey, Dr. Hollis Aubrey, ER physician, founded uh, physician moms group on Facebook, which was one of the original OG large Facebook groups now has about 120,000 women doctors on it. So she was our keynote speaker talking about the role of community. And that just thought, got me thinking about this community of people who listen to the podcast, who follow me on Instagram, who have been empowered to talk about their, their pelvic health, their menopause, their sexuality, with their partners, with their girlfriends, with their kids, with their doctors, and using this community as a resource to help them and help support other women. So, so freaking cool. So welcome to the March Live podcast. I'm going to boot up my Q&A. So all of these questions are are coming from um, everybody who, who talks to me on Instagram now, that I can't, number one, no personal medical advice. You know that, it's on my Instagram thing. Um, but you guys ask questions all the time and the live podcast is an amazing place to do it. So without further ado, the first question is about the Joylux device. So Joylux, what is their website? We'll figure it out. The VFIT Joylux, joylux.com. I am not promoting them. They are not paying for this, this um podcast, the VFIT Gold device. So what it is, somebody was like, my thoughts on this. Um, I've never tried it. They've never sent me a free sample. Feel free to send me a free sample if you want me to try it. Um, basically, it's a fancy, expensive vibrator that you have to buy their proprietary electrovoltaic gel um, to get it to work better. It's $400. That's down. When it came to my office, they were trying to sell this in my office. Uh, they're marketing it for about $800. So that's cheaper, but $400 for a vibrator. There are top of the line vibrators that I think are probably worth spending $100 to $150 on, uh, not $400. So I think they are making um, medical claims that they can't uh, prove here. So they say improve sex control and lubrication with our intimate health device, uh, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. So it says, experience a stronger pelvic floor, improve sensation, and a feeling of tightness uh, thanks to VFIT's red light benefits. Show me the data where red light helps with those things. Now, is it a pelvic floor exerciser? Are orgasms pelvic floor muscle contractions? Yes. Does strengthening your pelvic floor help with um, the feelings of in intense experience with orgasm? Yes. Do we think a healthy pelvic floor may help prevent prolapse? Possibly. So all good things. Now, do you need to buy a $400 proprietary vibrator with, hold on, just so you need to know, the photonic gel that goes with it. So special lube for your special vibrator is $25. You can get lube way cheaper, you guys. 
So I do not promote that nor endorse it. I don't think you need to spend $400 to tighten your pelvic floor. Um, that's my first question. Let's go back. Let's see what else. That's the end of joylux.com question. Next one, uh, COVID correlating to hormone imbalance. I have not seen a lot in this in the female uh, world. We possibly uh, contributes to lower testosterone um, in the male world. I have not seen it with female. Uh, interesting data that females tend to be less sick than males. Is there a role uh, in hormones? Is there a role with the extra part of our second X chromosome? Um, exciting stuff, more to follow. I don't have a strong opinion on if COVID affects your hormones because I just haven't seen the data. Um, somebody asked if my vagina has long lips, should I do surgery? No, you don't have to do surgery for, I, and what she's saying is the labia minora are probably longer or protruding. It is very common for that to happen, especially in thinner women, especially in younger women, when we have good estrogen status. So we have healthy, possibly longer labia minora. The problem is we don't educate our women to say that prominent labia minora are normal and don't need to be adjusted. So um, no, you don't need to have surgery. That's actually quite common, way more common than you see portrayed in pornography or even anatomy uh, drawings. The reasons to have surgery um, for your labia minora are it pinches, it pulls, it interferes with exercise, it interferes with me being able to keep clean, it interferes with me being able to have sexual intercourse because it pulls inside the vagina when you're doing those activities um, would be uh, medically necessary. I do not advocate um, genital surgery for cosmetic reasons. I think these are important sexual structures that can have profound sexual implications. Surgery cuts nerves. So you could have, uh, you know, nerve damage, like legitimately you're cutting nerves when you're cutting out tissue. You can't not do that. Um, and decrease sensation, uh, increase pain. You can have scarring from surgery. So sur surgery is indicated in some cases. I, you know, I haven't done a podcast on this, but I see this, you guys are being marketed to, oh, I'm being marketed to also, but perhaps you're not aware of how you're being marketed to in all aspects, but certainly in sexual health, we are being marketed to of like, do X, Y, and Z to increase your confidence. Here's some life coaching for you. External circumstances don't increase your confidence. Your thoughts increase your confidence. Cutting on your genitals doesn't increase your confidence. If you have increased confidence from cutting on your genitals, it's because you've thought the thought, my genitals are now better or more worthy or more industry standard or whatever it might be. You can't buy confidence. You can purchase something and have thoughts about purchasing something, increasing your confidence. My point is skip the middleman. Don't buy the supplement to increase your confidence. I saw this selling like a, it was like a lube or some sort of sexual health thing. It was like increased confidence. I'm like, you literally can't effing buy confidence in a tube, you guys. Confidence comes from within. It comes from our thoughts. It comes from our feelings. It comes from the actions that we do. Confidence is an inside job. It is not something to be purchased or to be cosmetically enhanced. 
if we cosmetically enhance our body and it increases our confidence, it's because we've changed our thoughts about our body because something's happened to it. My challenge for you, cut out the middleman, work on your confidence with the body you have, with the body that you've been given. Get the surgery if you want, but asterisk buyer beware. So many people get surgery and then it didn't change their confidence. And they're like, this is supposed to help me change my confidence. And it's like, but yeah, but because your thoughts didn't change when you got the breast augmentation or the labiaplasty or the nose job or whatever, not dissing plastic surgery. There's a, there's a place and it can be done well, but we don't educate people where their confidence comes from. We think it is to be purchased. We think it is to be given to us. Confidence comes from within. So God bless to all of those damn marketers who say, do X, Y, and Z to increase your confidence. That's not how confidence works. So I hope that is uh, very, very meaningful to you guys. Hey friends, March's podcast sponsor is the amazing company Taboo, T-A-B-U. Head over to heytaboo.com for their sexual wellness kit, which includes a massager and an organic lubricant to prioritize your sexual wellness. I love that the massager has an optional warming setting, being a former always frozen Minnesotan, and I love that their lubricant isn't sticky or tacky. Their team of clinicians and therapists really thought of women's comfort and what makes our bodies relax into pleasure. Use the code Y-A-N-B, as you are not broken, Y-A-N-B, for 15 percent off of your kit. Would you please give details on what the DNA PCR urinalysis is? Yeah, what it detects. This is urology, urology talk. Um, if the catheter is painful, etc. My urogynecologist mentioned it as a possibility. Yeah. So there are a couple of different companies out now that actually look at bacterial DNA. Um, instead of the, the traditional urine culture for infections, does a like a petri dish plate your microbiology 101 to grow out E. coli, Klebsiella, whatever the, the uropathinogen may be. And what we've said is maybe if we just look for the DNA of the bacteria instead, maybe it works better than if we do a culture, right? So that's where these companies are coming out. And a lot of insurances cover this. Um, a lot of companies want you to have a catheterized specimen because what happens a lot in women who leave urine samples is the urine will hit the labia. Why do I always use my face? Sorry, podcasters. You can't see my beautiful like face when I say labia. Um, the, lab the urine on the labia contaminates the urine, right? It gets, you get white cells, um, skin cells, all the things that because it's like pee to skin to cup. And so the, the point of the catheter is to bypass the like skin contaminated um, and just get like straight up bladder urine. That's the whole point of that, um, which makes sense. You want as precise of a test as possible. The problem is we used to think that urine was sterile. Now we know about 10%. If I just go onto the streets of Seattle and sample urine, about 10% of women are going to have bacteria in their urine that isn't making them sick. Think of bacteria on my skin and in my mouth and in my bowels that isn't making me sick, right? It's just part of our microbiome. So what do you do if you're having symptoms um, and maybe it's not bacteria, but now we're picking up this bacteria and now we're drugging it and now we're checking to make sure it's gone and we're just giving you a bunch of antibiotics. So there's no perfect test. We want to be very specific. 
that you're having acute bacterial cystitis symptoms when we test that, but some microorganisms just don't grow out as well on the Petri dish um, and looking for their actual DNA uh, can help. If your insurance doesn't cover these tests, they can easily be several hundred dollars. Um, I wouldn't do it for bread in the butter, bread in the butter, um, UTI, like, oh, I get one a year, not big. But if you're like over and over and over again, I get symptoms and nothing's growing out. Could you have like an atypical something going on? There is a role at that point. So possibly more than you wanted to know, but now everybody knows about that. I'm 53 and recently had a bone density test that found osteopenia. I am postmenopausal. Can HRT help with this? Um, I'm already on estradiol because of you. Yay. So yes, oral estrogen systemic hormone therapy is FDA approved for the prevention of osteoporosis. So if you have osteopenia, which is kind of a made up word to be like, not like an 18 year old bones, but not osteoporosis, but literally kind of a made up word. Um, you don't have osteoporosis. You certainly can prevent it. Hormone therapy, to the best of my knowledge and the data I've read, decreases osteoporotic uh, hip fractures by about 50%. That's huge, especially if you consider how frequent and common osteoporotic fractures are. Um, who doesn't have an aunt, a grandma with an osteoporotic hip fracture or spine compression fracture, frailty fractures, right? So I would say to this person, definitely uh, consider it, talk to your doctor about it. Estrogen is not FDA approved for the treatment of osteoporosis, but it is FDA approved for the primary prevention of osteoporosis. Um, and this is the other thing. This is, this is such a great question because women are like, I feel fine. I sailed through menopause. I have no symptoms. Should I be on hormone therapy? Right. That's the big unanswered question because you can't feel osteoporosis happening but we lose our bone mass off the top of my head at a rate of like two to 4% a year once we start menopause. So late forties, early fifties and beyond, our bone density is decreasing because of the lack of estrogen that you can't feel. So that for those women who are like, but I'm sleeping fine. I don't have any hot flashes. I don't have any weight gain. I don't have any moodiness. All these like, you know, quote unquote, typical menopause issues should you still be on it for bone health? That's individualized. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am going to tell you, I might want to think about it, especially if you've got sisters, mom, or you're in a high risk category for osteoporosis, which is the highest risk category is um, thin Caucasian women. Uh, lift your weights, ladies, lift your weights, lift your weights, bone density and muscles to prevent frailty. If you Plus, plus minus the estrogen cream, but or estrogen systemic, not estrogen cream. Remember, estrogen cream in your vagina does not help your bones. That is only for pelvis. So now I tell all my Instagram people, I keep asking the questions, but there are people on the webinar that if they have questions or they want to come on and ask a question, that's what the webinar permission is for. So raise your hand if you're on the webinar and you want to come in. Um, back to the DNA PCR urinalysis, does it also detect yeasts and viruses? Do, 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 do. Not to my, I, I, off the top of my head, I forget. I can't remember. I'll ask my reps next time they come into my office and get back to you um, because I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay, somebody writes in vaginal estrogen causing yeast infections. 
yes, it can happen. So basically what's happening, we get yeast infections because of the change in pH of our vagina in perimenopause, postmenopause. Remember our vagina likes, if, if I can personify, can I personify our vagina that it likes stuff? Lactobacillus, which is our healthy microbiome, which fights infections um, and decrease yeast when we have an acidic vagina, right? So the, the vagina becomes more basic as we lose our estrogen and the estrogen is what helps our lactobacillus, which creates citric acid, which makes the vagina acidic, right? So as our microbiome gets thrown off, we are more prone to yeast infections. What I think is happening, because I haven't seen a lot of data on this, what I think is happening when we start on the vaginal estrogen and then notice we're getting or either getting BV or we're getting uh, vaginal yeast infections is our microbiome is changing, right? It's being thrown off. You've got a new thing in there. It's reestablishing itself. The microflora is changing. I believe that if you stick with the vaginal estrogen, you will decrease your risk of, of yeast infections overall. Um, cause certainly I see yeast infections go up in the perimenopause birth control, postmenopause era because of the microbiome being thrown off. So that's what I say. I say as much as you want to kind of grin and bear it, or maybe try a lower dose vaginal estrogen to ease yourself through it. Once you get to that reacidified lactobacillus happy place, you should see an overall decrease in yeast infections. Somebody says I have a white discharge often might want to get swabbed for BV yeast, uh, but remember you guys, discharge in the vagina, especially in the healthy pre-menopause vagina, we're supposed to be having discharge. You might see more discharge if you wax or if you shave or you get rid of that hair, which really acts as a trapping agent, lint filter, for those who do laundry and want bad, a bad analogy. Um, so I, I saw a, a teenage girl who she'd been to several gynecologists trying to figure out this vaginal discharge. They checked for all the infections. They did all of the ultrasounds, couldn't come up with anything. And she's like, there's gotta be something wrong with me. I've got this vaginal discharge. And, and I'm like, you've taken all your hair off. So it's way more obvious that you see the discharge because it's not getting trapped. And in a well estrogenized vagina, you know, the classic thing of the vagina is a self-cleaning oven of you're going to see that discharge come out. That's how it's taking care of itself and cleaning itself. The poor vagina, I've given it a personality. Um, so yeah, but if it's, if it's painful, if it's smelly, if it's new, get certainly get swabbed for some bacterial overgrowth, uh, certainly could be possible. Okay. Next question. I have had a heart attack. So doctors are saying I cannot do any sort of hormone therapy. Is this true? No. So what you said was any sort of hormone therapy, vaginal estrogen, completely legit, completely allowed, no matter what kind of uh, cardiac history you've had, because vaginal estrogen is not systemic. And I just gave this lecture today because I'm in Seattle. I gave a grand rounds to the urology residents at Virginia Mason, which was awesome. I basically like I'll, I recorded it. So I'll put it on a podcast at some point but basically like fire hosed sex med of like things I didn't learn in residency that you need to know. Here's an hour. Um, so basically we were talking about that and I showed a graph of 
so somebody did a test where they measured your blood levels of estrogen after starting you on vaginal estrogen and it spikes up very temporarily and then normalizes again. And the more healthy your vagina gets, it becomes less absorptive of the product. So even over time, you, so you might, that's why you might have a little bit of breast tenderness in the beginning, or some people say like, I even had a headache for a little bit. It does go away. And I usually just say, cut back on your dose for a while until you get used to it. And then you can go up to the prescribed dose. But so to answer the question, vaginal estrogen is totally okay if you've had a heart attack. And now what I would do for this person is I would refer you to this paper that came out in uh, 2022 in the Mauritius, which is the menopause journal. It is written by Heather, Dr. Heather Hirsch, who's the amazing Harvard hormone guru uh, and also my friend because I'm lucky. And the name of the review article is Menopausal Symptom Management in Women with Cardiovascular Disease or Vascular Risk Factors. So certainly having a cardiac uh, a heart attack or cardiovascular disease can increase your risk. If anything, you should, if you're going to do systemic hormones, you should be on uh, transdermal. So either a patch or a femring. Um, or the creams, not on oral, because oral is probably the riskiest of all of them. So, they, so one of the statement guidelines in the paper is transdermal routes of hormone therapy are preferred for women with moderate to severe menopausal symptoms and cardiovascular factors. Um, but I think this is a great resource, again, in Mauritius, M-A-T-U-R-I-T-A-S in 2022, menopausal symptom management in women with cardiovascular disease or vascular risk factors. How smart would you be if you printed this out and brought it into your doctor who said, never can you ever. But this is always a great time to remind you guys, taking medications has risks. There's always risks. We, doctors can never be like, oh, don't worry, nothing will happen for taking this. Like, everything has risks and you accepting hormone therapy, it says I accept risk and my risk might be higher because of my pre-existing underlying cardiovascular disease, previous heart attack, X, Y, and Z. And it's really a discussion with you and your provider about risk benefit of like, my hot flashes are unbearable. I cannot get a solid four hours of sleep because of my poor sleep. Like what's the reason for wanting to be on the hormones and, you know, risk benefit of, and certainly starting at the lowest possible dose, all the things to talk about in being an informed consumer of healthcare. So I hope that that is helpful to you. Next question. How do you know when to see a gynecologist versus urologist versus family practice MD versus dermatologist for issues? I know it's so confusing. I'm 40 and I'm interested in getting my hormones checked after about six months of unusual periods, skipping months followed by months straight of bleeding, spotting, et cetera. Okay. That's just perimenopause when you're mid forties and that's what's going on. You literally don't need to get your hormones checked for that. People get so pissed and you get, you guys, you get pissed because you don't understand. So let me explain this. Your hormones go wackadoo in perimenopause, up, down, up, down, up, down, and testing them might catch you in like the up part or maybe in the down part, but now they look low, but then you get a period again, right? So taking a picture, like a one day blood draw picture of where your hormones are in perimenopause might not be helpful. In addition, let's say you're 56 and you haven't had periods in four years and you're like, I really want my hormones checked. And the doctor's like, you don't need them checked. And then you get pissed because you don't understand your hormones are zero. 
you're postmenopause. You haven't had periods. I don't need to take your blood to tell you that. We just know that, right? So that's where, like, that's why women succumb to these people who are like, let me do your saliva and your urine and give me thousands of dollars because you're like, oh, I just need it checked. Now, you can get it checked for curiosity's sake. I'm not saying you shouldn't get it checked, but just understand in medicine, this is like the think like a doctor thing. When we order tests, we're trying to answer a question, right? And if it's not going to help answer a question, why do the invasiveness of whatever test it's going to be? CAT scan, blood draw, blah, blah, blah. This is useful for anything you see a doctor for, right? Because if you're like, I need a CAT scan. Like, what question are you trying to answer? And is that test going to answer it? Is the way that doctors think about tests. And I see this a lot like in trainees, right? Um, of like, I want to order X, Y, and Z. And you're like, what question are you trying to answer by doing this? Just ordering tests for test sake might make you feel good, but like, you know, have a reason. So if you're in their mid forties, you're having spotty periods, you're in perimenopause, checking your hormones might not help. And then your question is, well, who do I go to, to have that discussion? I would say a, somebody who, you know, is trained in it, right? Family practice is pretty good. I think they're getting better. I think we are focusing on perimenopause and menopause more, but again, that might be the world I live in because I have these conversations all the time. Gynecologists are not a sure shot. I wish they were. Um, I people can have wonderful conversations with them or get nowhere with them. I'd say a dermatologist doesn't tend, unless they're selling you pellets and expensive, expensive lab stuff, they're probably a generic broad statement, not going to be the best people to have the hormone discussion with. Um, and then urologist, Maybe not. I mean, you guys, not a lot of urologists do hormones. It's just the world that I'm in because I'm like so freaking passionate about helping women and understanding hormones. The lecture I gave today to the Virginia Mason residents, I'm like, urologists are the experts on testosterone. So we should be very comfortable in giving testosterone to both men, women, all genders, non-binary, all the peoples. And then it's not a huge leap because we're already used to hormones and especially testosterone, which I think gynecologists are less comfortable with. Right. Um, so I don't think it's a leap at all for urologists to be passionate and good about doing hormones. But again, it's the, it's the fishbowl that I swim in. Um, next question. Oh, wait. So to finish her question, after hearing about it on your podcast, I think there's a good chance I have lichen sclerosis which type of doctor do I begin for though that issue? Probably a gynecologist. I it just, again, generically, um, gynecologists are pretty trained in that, um, vulvar specialists. So big academic places will have vulvar clinics. Um, Jill Kraft on the East coast in DC. She's a gynecologist. Uh, uh, her partner is Andrew Goldstein, um, highly, highly trained vulvar specialists. You're going to get the best if you go to them. So if you're lucky enough to be on the East Coast and think you have lichen sclerosis, they're very useful. What's the difference between estrogen gel and cream? Um, stereotypically, estrogen cream is something that goes in the vagina. Estrogen gel is something that goes on your skin for uh, hormone replacement therapy. But certainly you could get probably get a cream systemic wise too. Don't tend to put gel in your vagina. Um, so probably just different ways of delivering estrogen, I think is what that question's asking. 
if a guy has ED, that's erectile dysfunction, in your opinion, would the Phoenix device work or is this a ploy to get people to spend big money? Okay, excuse me while I Google this. Phoenix device. Anybody here want to shout out what a Phoenix device is? I learned so much from you guys. P-H-O-E. Phoenix device for ED. Oh, that looks painful. Okay. Phoenix shockwave therapy. So shockwave, oh, good Lord. It looks like a rocket ship. <laughs> that looks like a rocket ship space device. 98% um, success rate. I doubt it. I super doubt it. Uh, first tech device for men that delivers better sex. Really? If it works, how come urologists haven't heard of it? That is my big question. Let's see how much it costs, how it works. So shockwave therapy, just so you guys know, is um, we use it all the time for kidney stones, right? It's like non-invasive through the skin and it's supposed to increase blood flow uh, and the health of tissues. It is, um, not standard of care for erectile dysfunction. The American Urology Association does not recommend shockwave therapy because it's still considered experimental. Um, and they basically, the AUA says, just do it in the setting of a clinical trial, which is not what this is. Okay, so you basically take the Phoenix and you, oh, now the person on the website wants to talk to me. Tip the Phoenix, the tip of the Phoenix is placed directly against the shaft of the penis and moved back and forth along five specific lines of travel according to a treatment protocol created by doctors who are experts in the field. Really? When will I see results? So you have to do this um, for 30 days straight and then repeat as needed. You might notice it within 60 to 120 days of getting started. How much does it cost? That's what I want to know. Let's see. Financing. Convenient and easy financing. You guys, how much does this thing cost? If they don't tell you upfront how much it costs, it might be expensive. I would say don't do it. See your doctor. Um, again, considered experimental by AUA. And if I can't just Google it and figure out how much this costs in a short period of time, I would say it probably is over $1,000. So I do not, I do not approve. I do not approve of you spending your money on that. My like secondary job is to save you guys freaking cash because you've got better things to spend it on. And the internet wants to take your money. Do you know that? The internet would like to take your money from you. That's how the internet works. All right, let's go back to Q&A. How do you know if your estrogen is low? Is it just a test or is it based on symptoms? Okay, well, this goes back to the previous conversation of like, do you need your hormones tested? If you're post-menopause and you're not having periods, if you're 63, your estrogen's low unless you're taking, unless you're taking um, estrogen. So, and then the other, again, to reiterate in perimenopause, it's reverse puberty, up, down, up, down, up, down, down for a while, up next month. So taking a snapshot isn't, a good indication of like overall. And if you're having irregular periods or intermittent menopause symptoms and you're, you're in the age group of late thirties to early fifties, that's perimenopause. And just taking a snapshot of estrogen is not always useful. Cause again, what question is it trying to answer? How frequently do you come across a postmenopausal uh, urovaginal atrophy patient who experiences uncomfortable side effects from vaginal estrogen? 
Oh man, it's, I mean, I think it's more frequent than is talked about, right? I think some people are just sensitive to the cream, whether it's because it's got an alcohol base in it, or people just have really sensitive skin or their, their vulva is just so atrophic that like everything pisses it off. Um, again, most of those symptoms I think are temporary as we're adjusting to it. Think of like a face cream where you're trying to like resurface or get rid of some abnormal cells. Like it's uncomfortable for a while until you get used to it. So I think most of it's temporary and I tell women to stick with it for like six to eight weeks. If it's still bothering you, it might be a sensitivity to the product. So then we can look at switching to a tab, switching to a ring or getting a compounded cream. But I wouldn't say that it's super uncommon for people to have issues. On that note, the, I think the, the other question to ask is because a lot of experts will say that you, it really takes um, six to eight weeks to see a benefit from estrogen cream, I'll have women be like the first dose, the second dose, I could already tell my symptoms are so much better. Um, so it, 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 people respond to it faster than some of us say that it takes. Um, next question, can childhood catheter exams cause, cause long-term trauma, vulvodynia, lichen sclerosis? The short answer is no. Catheters go in the urethra and things that you asked, like lichen sclerosis and vulvodynia are vulvar issues. So two different organs, one, both in the neighborhood, right? But so putting a catheter in your urethra as an adult or a child does not cause lichen sclerosis. Um, and putting a catheter urethra in the, in the catheter in the urethra does not cause uh, vulvodynia. Now, however, if you experience trauma from this experience, meaning I felt violated, it hurt a lot. Um, we certainly can develop like a pain tightness reflex arc where our pelvic floor consciously or subconsciously will tighten up and become painful because of a previous experience. Um, that's legitimate. So th I would think more of that than the actual like catheter causing it. It's more like how did the pelvis react to it? but certainly no, a catheter in the urethra cannot cause lichen sclerosis. What's the difference between estradiol vaginal cream and Imvexi vaginal inserts? So Imvexi is, which one's the DHEA? I always get that confused with um, Intrarosa. Imvexi, I think that's the low dose estrogen one. Yeah, so Imvexi is estrogen and estrogen vaginal cream is estrogen. Invexi is literally the lowest dose vaginal estrogen that you can buy that is FDA approved. It's a little tab. It's very teeny. It's very discreet. It goes up into the vagina. They're both estrogen. Now I like the cream because I think the clitoris, the urethra and the labia minora need the cream um, to help stay healthy. And Invexi might be too low of a dose and certainly it doesn't coat the extra skin tissues. Um, the way cream does, but they're both options. And Bexy actually uh, tends to be pretty cheap, especially if you use a specialty pharmacy that they, they um, work with. And, but estrogen creams, generic estradiol cream is actually pretty cheap these days also. So those are all good things. Um, what about nerve sensations from vaginal estrogens common? Yeah, so what we know, we have, we have a great study on this. 
that estrogen increases the nerve density to the clitoris and the um, pelvic tissues. So you might be noticing like your nerves are like feeling the estrogen. If it's unpleasant, again, it should go away and stabilize with um, continued use, but may may seem a little disconcerting in the beginning. But I think that's a good question. Yeah, I, I think it, again, going back to to the other question of like, how often are people like uncomfortable starting the vaginal estrogen? Like it happens. Some women just kind of need to be talked through the experience, right? Like you're literally, I tell women this, you're literally like building healthier new tissue. This isn't like putting on bronzer, right? Where like, it doesn't affect the tissue. You're literally helping the body rebuild the healthy tissue, which is good to know both in like how long that can take and the sensations that you're experiencing. But as that tissue gets replete, that's a fun word, replete with estrogen, the symptoms tend to mellow out. They said, oh, needed to know and hear that. The nerves go crazy with vaginal estradiol. Yeah, they, it might. Um, and you might be able to, it might, it might mellow out. Um, otherwise, you're, you might just have a sensitivity if it like keeps going after like two months of issues. Uh, is kidney reflux disease related to any other issues or is this an isolated issue that once it's fixed, it's fixed? Um, more of a question for a pediatric urologist. It's been a while since I've done my pediatric urology. Um, that tends to be a childhood um, reflux or the ureteral reflux. Um, not it, If it's fixed, it's fixed. Um, I, I wouldn't tend to think it's associated with too much else. Now the pediatric urologists are going to know way more than me, um, but there you go. At what age or stage should we consider vaginal estrogen? 55 to 60, I think. Um, Cause here's the problem. You're going back to like osteoporosis happens without us knowing it is our labia menorah resorb without us knowing it, unless you're like doing labia checks, which we aren't. Um, and really it's like the five to 10 years after menopause that the genital urinary syndrome of menopause really starts kicking in. And so if I was to think about vaginal estrogen as a preventative medicine, kind of like sunscreen, seat belts, whatever, preventative medicine um, that we do to just keep our body healthy uh, five to 10 years after menopause, certainly. I think people get symptoms a lot earlier, but again, some women don't, right? They have no symptoms. They're fine. But then, you know, you do an exam in 10 years and their labia minora is gone and they're getting recurrent UTIs and I, we can't make your labia minora come back, which is shocking to the system and traumatizing, but that's how it is. All right, guys, let's see if I can do like one more. And then I've got to hop in the car, go back to my hometown and I've got surgery this afternoon. So I love talking with you though. This is good. We got through a lot of questions. Uh, how do I shop for a more educated doctor? Oh God, buyer beware, right? God bless us. Um, try, try, try again. Um, you get, you get better at navigating the healthcare system. The more you learn, the more you learn to communicate, the more you learn to kind of think how a doctor thinks, right? Um, and a lot of doctors, like we're curious, we love science. We love evidence-based medicine. We really love helping people. So I'm going to give the, the doctors the benefit of the doubt that said, never have I ever realized how hard it is for women to get good, 
medical care than since I've started this podcast. And since I've started talking to you guys on Instagram and really hearing your struggles. Um, so I would say the buck doesn't stop with one doctor, but if you've seen three and they're all like, listen, you've had like three heart attacks and a blood clot. Nobody's going to give you vag Nobody's going to give you systemic estrogen. Like they're probably giving you good, consistent medical advice. It's just probably too risky for you. Um, so that, again, that's pattern recognition and seeing a couple of people for multiple opinions. Here's the deal, you guys. Some people, it's hard to effing believe. Some people don't like seeing me. Like they think I'm too blunt. They think I'm too abrasive. They think I don't spend enough time with them. Like you have to find the person that works for you and that fits with you. And, and that said, like I've had people who love me and they bring me gifts all the time. So I had a woman literally just hand knit me like cashmere hand warmers. Like I'm a peach. Some people don't like peaches. You're going to see a doctor. You're going to connect with them. You're not going to connect with them. You just got to find the person that works for you. Right. And like no doctor is so good that every single person loves them and connects with them. And what I hope is that you guys can find a relationship with somebody who can follow you, who knows your story. It's, it means repeat business, uh, repeat visits in a world of 15 minute insurance, a lot that much time. Right. Um, so is that, is that, did that answer your question? The question was, how do I shop for a more educated doctor? Well, websites can help if they're NAM certified, if they're interested in women's health, um, if they say that they like helping with menopause or cer certainly anybody who's on the Ishwish um, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health website, uh, you know that they're gonna be interested in sexuality and helping with sexual dysfunction disorders, but not all Ishwish people are menopause people. Not all menopause people like and know talking about sex. So like, that's why I'm amazing. <laughs> Sorry, shameless self plug for my like niche of all niches, which is like hundreds of millions of women, right? Like, I think everybody should be comfortable talking about menopause because it's normal if you want to live past the age of 51. I think everybody should be comfortable talking about sex because it's normal if you're a human being built in a body that has sexual parts and a brain, right? So I don't think these are all that, you know, minority, these are not minority, like percentage of the population issues. This is like bread and butter human experience issues. Long winded of how do I shop for a more educated doctor is like, learn what you need, learn how to communicate it, ask questions um, as much as you can be curious always be curious more than like, this is what I need, or I'm going to leave you or, you know, like that's not how a relationship is built. So it's just communication um, skills sometimes on the part of both you and the doctor, right? The doctor not, the doctor not communicating why they say no, right? Or feeling threatened by having to explain why they say no, instead of like, I just don't have a lot of education or because your wrist, like you literally have a blood clot and like active breast cancer that you're not treating. I'm not going to give you hormones, right? That's an extreme case. All right, you guys, I love you so much. I've got to end my morning and go drive, listen to some podcasts. Cause when kids are in the car, I get to listen to my pod, not my podcast, but podcasts I like to listen to. And until next time you're not broken. I love you guys so, so much. Thanks for joining me.